BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. This is the Asian Madness Podcast. A podcast where we discuss all things true crime, morbid, mysterious, and odd from the Asian continent. I am your host, Jessica. Kazakhstan, once known as the Kazakh Autonomous Socialist Soviet Republic, but currently known as the Republic of Kazakhstan, is a country located in Central Asia. Although it is mostly recognized as a Central Asian country, the western part of the country actually lies in Eastern Europe. Kazakhstan's neighbors include Russia, China, Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, and part of its southwest coastline runs along the Caspian Sea. Size-wise, Kazakhstan is about 2.7 million kilometers squared, or about 1.1 million square miles. Since I'm betting most of us don't know much about Central Asia, it's worth mentioning that Kazakhstan is very big, the ninth largest country in the world, right after Argentina. As of recent, the population is around 19.4 million, which, considering its size, is not very populated. They have less than half the population as that of Argentina, a country similar in size. The current capital city is Astana, but prior to 1997, Almaty, the largest city in Kazakhstan, was the capital city. The official languages recognized include both Kazakh and Russian, and Cyrillic is considered the official script language. The Cyrillic script is also known as the Slavic script, which is basically a writing system for many languages you see across Eurasia, including Russia. Now, let's talk a bit about the people. Ethnically speaking, the population is very diverse. Most people, though, about 70%, are made up of native Kazakhs. The second largest group would be the Russians, which makes up about 15% of the population. The rest are generally other Central Asian and European groups, such as Uzbeks, Ukrainians, and Uyghurs. About 70% of the population consider themselves Muslim, and the second largest group, the Christians, are at about 17%. They also take into account that 13% of the population consider themselves atheists. What's interesting to note is that Kazakhstan is the largest landlocked country in the world, 
and it is also the largest Muslim-majority country by land size. Now let's take a brief look at the history of Kazakhstan. Just as a reminder, country borders were not really a thing back in the olden days, so some history is going to revolve around Central Asia and Russia in general. It is believed that humans have been living in present-day Kazakhstan since Paleolithic times, otherwise known as the Old Stone Age. People that lived here around the year 3700 BCE supposedly were one of the first ones to domesticate and ride horses. And during the Neolithic Age, pastoralism became common, where mainly nomadic people raised animals in open fields, traveled, and moved to new places together when needed. Various groups of people spent some time living in present-day Kazakhstan or Central Asia during the late prehistoric years, groups such as the Indo-European Afanasievo, the Andronovo, Indo-Iranian Saka, and the Scythians. An important part of Kazakh history is the migration of the Turkic people from all sides. What exactly are Turkic people, not to be confused with Turkish people? They're an ethnic group from all around Asia, and their facial features are very diverse, where some have Western features and some others are more East Asian looking. The East Asian looking Turkics were the ones who ended up in present-day Kazakhstan, which could explain why many people you see from this country look more East Asian. Some of these groups were nomads, some of them settled down. Either way, they developed kind of their own culture there, and everyone sort of found their place there. The previous population, which were mostly from Indo-Iranian cultures, slowly began to assimilate and conform into this new culture. More and more of these Turkic people began arriving and settling down in Kazakhstan, a lot of these people being the Mongols. Of course, as more people join together, a type of government is bound to form. The first Turkic Empire was established around the year 552 CE and eventually more of them began to form. Now, let's touch a bit on Islam, since this is the main religion, so we should kind of know how it started. Arabs began invading Central Asia around the 8th century, starting from the south and eventually spreading its influences northward. Many indigenous people converted to Islam, and that was the beginning of Islam in Central Asia. So a bunch of different Turkic groups began arriving and forming groups, and the Mongols were the ones who began to quote-unquote rule the area around the 13th century. Administrative districts were set up, and the Mongol Empire began to divide up the land, which resulted in the borders of present-day Kazakhstan. The Golden Horde, or the Great State, were the main rulers at the time, and they were also huge fans of Islam, so that kind of helped spread the religion. Moving on, the Kazakh Khanate, or Kazakh Empire, ruled by the Turco-Mongol group of Tor, took over once the Golden Horde began dissolving. Life continued on until around the 15th century, where a 32-year-long war broke out, that being the Kazakh War of Independence. This was a war between the Kazakh Khanate and the Uzbek Khanate over control of present-day Kazakhstan. This war ended in the year 1500, where both sides declared peace and the Kazakh Khanate separating itself from the Uzbek Khanate. Of course, dispute and war continued on, especially between the Kazakh groups and their neighbors. This rivalry continued on till the 17th century, 
as the neighboring rivals continued to disrupt and divide the population into various groups. It's hard trying to keep a nation so big united, and it's even harder when outsiders are outright trying to sabotage your plans. The Kazakh Khanate began to weaken, and as it was weakening significantly, the Kiva Khanate took this moment to swoop in and take over a part of western Kazakhstan. Doesn't end there though, because there are more battles between different groups, and the Kazakh Khanate was actually flourishing during the 1700s. They fought tons of people off left and right, including the Dzungar Khanate as they tried to invade. These battles lasted from around the 1720s to the 1750s, but all good things eventually come to an end. The Kazakhanate was very ambitious, and they eventually tried expanding their territories into present-day Russia. That didn't work out so well, and in return, the Russians ended up expanding all over Central Asia. This was also around the time the Great Game took place, basically a strategic rivalry between the Russians and the British over who could take over all these Asian territories. It was pretty much like a passive-aggressive game, hence the name. As you may know, the British had already established a presence in South Asia, and they were positive that the Russians were trying to take over India. On the other hand, Russia was taking over Central Asia, and they were suspicious of the British, thinking they had plans to move north from India and invade Central Asia. So during all this weird tension and weird diplomacy, no one really cared what the actual Asians wanted. It's like having parents who are divorcing and making secret plans about their kid and completely disregarding that their kid might have their own ideas and plans. So Russian presence in Central Asia continued, and it made Russia feel good because they had so much territory to show for. The Kazakhs, though, felt otherwise. By the 1860s, the locals were feeling kind of irritated at the Russians were trying to take over every part of their life, and not just changing up their traditions and lifestyle, but there were also a lot of famine and suffering going on. Many of these people began to resist, but nothing really came out of that resistance. Russians became more aggressive towards colonizing Central Asia, not just by taking territory, but also by actively encouraging Russian citizens to move into Central Asia in order to make this assimilation happen faster. There was a huge rush of immigrants flocking into Central Asia during the late 1800s and early 1900s, including Russians, Germans, Jews, etc. So resentment continued to grow, and in 1916, the Central Asian Revolt took place, where Kazakhs began to attack these foreign European settlers. It was a huge loss on all sides, but still, the Russians held on. A major political change took place in the early 1900s in Russia, and that is the uprise of the Bolsheviks, or rather, the Great October Socialist Revolution, led by Vladimir Lenin. Kazakhstan kind of drifted off the radar for a bit, as Russia was trying to get their own political issues under control, but as soon as they figured out their situation, Central Asia was back in their control. This would be the beginning of the Kazakh Autonomous Socialist Soviet Republic, which is part of the Russian Soviet Federative Socialist Republic. Yes, it is a mouthful, so I will not be saying that again. Kazakhstan was later on renamed as the Kazakh ASSR, and while the previous administrative center of Kazakhstan used to be in Russia, 
It was later on moved to a city located in Kazakhstan. Again, the Soviets were not particularly caring for the Kazakhs, or Central Asia in general. Lots of people died in famines, people weren't happy, and anyone who opposed the government were killed under Soviet rule. In 1936, Kazakhstan was once again renamed from Kazakh ASSR to the Kazakh Soviet Socialist Republic. In a sense, their status kind of elevated into a republic, but they were so closely tied to Soviet Russia. Other things that happened in the mid-1900s include the Virgin Lands policy, which is where Soviet Russia attempted to change Kazakhstan into a grain-producing country, and if anything good came from being a Soviet republic, this would be it. A lot of prisoners were also moved to a camp in Kazakhstan, and many others were also forced to move from Soviet Russia into Kazakhstan for the sake of population control. This is why, for a hot minute, there were more Russians than local Kazakhs living in Kazakhstan. Kazakhstan finally gained its independence on December 16, 1991 from Russia, making them the last Soviet republic to become independent, with Lithuania being the first one. These series of Declaration of Independence is largely due to the end of the Soviet Union, as they officially disbanded 10 days after Kazakhstan peaced out. The capital city of Kazakhstan was also moved from Almaty to Astana. The first president after independence, Nur Sultan Nazarbayev, was determined to turn the country around, as they had suffered quite a bit under their Soviet era. About 15 years after gaining independence, Kazakhstan became the country with the highest GDP throughout Central Asia, mostly thanks to the oil industry, which we know is a huge cash grabber. So that's Kazakhstan at a glance. Hopefully it wasn't too overwhelming, and to spice things up, here are some fun facts you probably did not know about the country. Kazakhstan is also home to the highest mountain skating rink, which is very random but interesting. If you like anything space-related, you might recall the first artificial satellite named Sputnik 1, and the guy who was sent into space, Yuri Gagarin. Sputnik 1 was launched from Kazakhstan in 1957. Kazakhstan is also super rich in minerals and natural resources, including lead, zinc, uranium, iron, copper, gold, and natural gas. Although Kazakhstan loves horses, the national animal is actually a steppe eagle, which you can see on their flag. One interesting but not so fun fact is the Semipolitinsk nuclear test site, also known as the Polygon. It was a place located within Kazakhstan in which the Soviet Union used to test their nuclear weapons. 456 tests were conducted there within the span of 50 years, and this piece of information was not shared with anyone until after the Soviet Union collapsed. Not surprising, I bet. An estimated 1.5 million people were said to have been exposed and affected by these tests, which is really unfortunate. It is even said that the radiation in this place is worse than that of Chernobyl. So final thoughts. While it's likely you associate the words nomads, horses, fields, and mountains when it comes to Kazakhstan, make no mistake, their cities are very beautiful and highly modernized. Just thought I would mention that. So, moving on to today's main case. This was a case suggestion made by a listener, Light Shoma via email, so thank you so much for this. 
I honestly would have never known about this because we know how it is when it comes to lesser-known countries. I sometimes have to type really dumb things in Google like country name plus murder or mystery. It's not the best way, but it gets the job done sometimes. So we have seen, heard, and known of multiple murderers who kill, and that's a given. But what about people who kill and allegedly consume their victims? I know we're probably all thinking about Hannibal Lecter, because he's like the mascot for cannibalism at this point. But how many real-life people-eaters have you heard of? We know of Sagawa Ise, the dude who killed a woman and ate her because he wanted to. There's also Albert Fish, and of course, Jeffrey Dahmer. But in Kazakhstan, they have their very own Hannibal Lecter. And even though he's still alive, he's still out there in prison, and probably will be staying there till he dies. This is the case of Nikolai Zumagaliev, and some of his nicknames include Metal Fang, Iron Fang, White Fang, and the Kazakhstani Cannibal. Let's begin. Nikolai Zumagaliev was born on November 15, 1952, near the then capital city of Almaty, during the Soviet-Russia rule of Kazakhstan. Everywhere I looked, Nikolai was described as a super-normal guy with a super-normal upbringing. What does that mean? His mother was from Belarus, his father was from Kazakhstan, and he was the only boy out of his group of siblings. He went to school, he didn't have any weird relationships with his family members or adults, he wasn't abused, he didn't kill or try to kill animals, not that we know of, he didn't have issues with wetting the bed as an older child, nor were there any reports of him setting things on fire. Of course, it could just be that some of these things did happen, but no one was aware of it, and he never felt the need to mention these things. It's easier to think that way because otherwise, you have a completely normal person who simply decided to become a murderer, and that just complicates human nature even more. He went on to study at a railway school, which eventually led to him working at a railway. As Kazakhstan was under Soviet rule during his life, he was later on conscripted into the army when he was 18, in the year 1970, where he worked in the chemical defense sector located in Uzbekistan, or the then Uzbek SSR. After serving for a few years, he was once again a neutral civilian, and he had multiple options. He could go find a job, or he could go back to school. Hard to say how the job market or school enrollment was like back in the 1970s during Soviet rule, but despite trying, he was unable to find a job he liked enough, nor a school that would accept him. What now? He decided to experience life, as in travel, maybe soul search, that kind of stuff that young people like to do before settling down. Most of his travels were around Kazakhstan and Russia. To be fair, these two countries are huge, so there's definitely enough places to explore without having to cross into another continent. Traveling also required money to get to places and to survive, so he did a number of odd jobs here and there, partly to come up with the funds and also to kind of see what he was good at or what he liked. Two major things happened in 1977 that affected Nikolai. After he was content with his travels, he returned to Uzinash, 
a village located in southeastern Kazakhstan, then landed a job as a firefighter. The second thing, he unfortunately managed to contract not one, but two sexually transmitted diseases. I know, it sucks. It could very well be because he solicited sex workers, and since sex education probably was not widespread, they did not use protection. It was said that contracting these two STDs created this sort of rage inside him towards women, as if it was a conspiracy against him. I know it sounds a bit far-fetched, but it's not uncommon for some people to feel targeted. More on this later. To all my American listeners, you must be sick and tired and stressed every day about money. I am. Inflation is very real, and managing money, trying to stay on top of my financial goals, is becoming a hassle. Monitoring my credit score and bank account has become a boring and unhealthy habit. So how do you make your financial goals more achievable? What is out there that can maybe make life a little easier for you? Chime is a financial technology company that can help you manage money you have and also help build your credit score over time. They report your payments to credit bureaus and have reportedly helped their members increase about 30 points on average. That could make all the difference. They don't charge annual fees, no need for large security deposits, and best of all, they don't require credit checks to apply, so that's a great way to get started. Start making your financial dreams a reality with Chime. Signing up only takes two minutes and does not affect your credit score. Get started at Chime.com Asian. That's Chime.com Asian. The Chime Credit Builder Visa credit card is issued by Stride Bank, North America, pursuant to a license from Visa USA Chime checking account and $200 qualifying direct deposit required to apply for the secured Chime Credit Builder Visa credit card. Regular on-time payment history can have a positive impact on your credit score. Impact of score may vary, and some users' scores may not improve. Out-of-network ATM withdrawal fees may apply except at MoneyPass ATMs in a 7-Eleven or any AllPoint or Visa Plus Alliance ATM. Who knows when Nikolai decided to pursue murder as a side job, though, but it was said that he planned all his murders out very carefully. As a young man, Nikolai enjoyed hunting, but he realized that hunting people, or women, was much more exciting than animals. It also helped that Nikolai was pretty calm and introverted, but not so introverted where people thought he was a loner with no friends. In other words, he kind of blended into the crowd quite well. His first murder took place in January of 1979. It was a cold day. He was traveling down a rural path when he saw a woman walking by herself some distance ahead of him. While this seems kind of spontaneous, he probably had been thinking about how to murder for a long time. He began to get closer to the woman, doing this little weird jog until he finally caught up to her. According to Nikolai, the woman noticed someone was behind her, and as she turned around to look, he grabbed her, put his arm around her throat, and dragged her to the side of the road, presumably out of sight. Of course, the woman resisted and tried to get away, but Nikolai came prepared. He took out the knife that he was carrying and swiftly slit her throat. Her body was still warm, so he tried to warm his hands with her body, and then proceeded to take off all her clothing. 
This area must have been extremely rural and remote because he then began to cut off different parts of the woman, including her breasts, her ovaries, and some other internal organs. He basically carved this poor woman up and took all her important parts. He wrapped up the pieces and placed them in his bag, left the rest of her body there, and went on home. In his own confession later on, he admitted to using her fat to fry food with, then pickled some other pieces. He also put some parts in a meat grinder, made dumplings out of them, and ate them up. This was supposedly the first time he tried human flesh, and it sounds like it was more out of curiosity, as he explained that it took some time for him to finally get used to the taste and idea of eating human beings. Quote, the meat of this woman took me a month to eat, unquote. Either way, he got used to it, and he decided that he would continue down this path. The woman's body was found not too long after she was murdered. It was a terrifying crime scene for sure, but the police had no idea what happened or how to begin their investigation. Clearly, this went nowhere. So not long after, this case pretty much became a cold case. Since no one suspected Nikolai, and he managed to get away with doing it one time, it only emboldened him to find more victims. During the six months after his first murder, he managed to kill at least five more women, and much to his delight, he was never a suspect for any of these missing and murdered women. But something did happen to him in August of 1979, after killing at least six women. Nikolai was hanging out with some of his co-workers, drinking and whatnot, when he took a gun and accidentally shot one of his co-workers. I don't know how things like this can happen, but anything is possible when alcohol is involved. Of course, multiple people witnessed this event, and the police came over and picked Nikolai up. After investigating the situation and looking into Nikolai, he was found to be schizophrenic. Instead of locking him away in a prison, he was instead institutionalized at a hospital. Kind of surprised that they took his mental health seriously, because it was back in the 70s and 80s, and throwing a man in prison seemed like less of a hassle. Don't get me wrong, I think this is good, because if someone is found to be mentally unwell, they should be getting the kind of help they need instead of throwing them in prison, where they will most likely get worse. But this was not really the case. Nikolai spent a year at Servsky Center, a psychiatric hospital. He was released in 1980. Was he better? I would say no, because within that year, he went on to murder at least three more women. It was said that Nikolai had a very distinct method when it came to the murder process. So Nikolai wasn't the kind of guy that had weird mannerisms. He was well-liked, he had friends, he was clean-shaven and dressed well. He didn't raise any alarm bells. He wasn't the kind of guy that made you go like, hmm, better get as far away from him as possible. So clearly, looks can be very deceiving. He came off as trustworthy, and this helped him gain the trust of his victims. It was said that Nikolai particularly enjoyed walking along the riverbank, and every time he found a woman he wanted to kill, he would find ways to lure her over to an isolated area in the park by the river, attack the woman, rape her, and then use either a knife or an axe to hack them to death. 
Yes, he carried these weapons on him everywhere he went, just in case the perfect opportunity came around. Not only did he kill these women, he would again take parts of their flesh, organs, or whatever, put them in his bag, carry them home, and then cook and serve himself. It's wild to me how he managed to kill so many women, and if you think about everything he does with the victims, he must be spending quite a bit of time with the bodies. It's not a simple case of slash and run. He has to physically stay there with the body, cutting them up, bagging the flesh and organs. Wouldn't he be a bloody mess every time he killed a woman? Axes and knives usually work best at close range, so did no one ever see him walk around with blood all over himself? Since he was never caught for these murders at the time, I can only assume he picked a secluded area or only operated during certain times of the day where people were less likely to be around. With the way Nikolai operated and knowing that he was schizophrenic, it was only a matter of time until he did something outrageous. I wouldn't say he was reckless, but I do believe he viewed the world, or maybe his murders, in a different light. In some sick sense, he probably felt his actions were justified. So how was he finally captured? While I've come across a few different versions, we will go with the version I've seen come up more, but I will also tell you the other version, just in case. It really makes no big difference, as the end result is all the same. So version 1. Like I mentioned, this man was not some weird loner who did not have friends. He was introverted, but he did have friends. He even liked to host gatherings, invite people to eat dinner at his house. Makes you wonder if he's ever served his victims to his friends. So one night in December of 1980, Nikolai invited a bunch of his friends and their girlfriends over for dinner. This is a really strange situation. Apparently, he managed to get one of his friends alone, while everyone else socialized in the room next to the kitchen. What happened to this lone friend? Well, Nikolai just killed them. Not sure how, but probably not in a way that attracted too much attention, because apparently no one noticed at first. From the way it was described, it's as if Nikolai did not have dinner prepared, and instead viewed one of his guests as the main entree for the night's dinner. So for a while, Nikolai got to work on his dead friend, dismembering them and trying to slice off pieces of flesh and fat. As for the other guests, maybe they got curious and decided to check in on their host. And what a sight. Imagine walking into a room, not even locked or anything, and you see one of your friends bent over on the floor cutting up another friend. What do you do? Well, you scream, run, and get help. The police, of course, were immediately called, and when they arrived at Nikolai's home, Nikolai was still in a trance-like state, sitting on the floor with his dead friend's body, cutting away like no big deal. He saw that the police were in his house, and maybe that sudden change or realization broke him from his weird trance. He probably realized, oh crap, this is not a good look. So while the police were standing around, unsure of what to do, Nikolai made a run for it and escaped. It's not great, but I can hardly blame the police. This is not a very common scenario. And if nothing bad ever happened around town, this sight would shock and scare anyone, 
police and civilian alike. The police initially had no idea where Nikolai ran off to, and it's probably hard to predict as well, because he was just acting very erratic. They still did their job and went around asking everyone he knew if they had seen him or heard from him. While it's not impossible that he would try to hide in the outdoors, it was cold. It was December. Realistically, he would be somewhere with a roof over his head. Nikolai was found the following day hiding in his cousin's home, and both him and the cousin were taken away by the police. I know this sounds like good news, like he's finally off the streets for good, but just wait. So before we continue, another version of how he was caught goes like this. Nikolai was looking for his next victim to kill and eat, so he invited two random drunk people he met on the street to come back to his house for some snacks. Maybe this was normal, befriending people on the streets and going to their house late at night. The three arrived at Nikolai's house, and when Nikolai went to prepare quote-unquote snacks for his new friends, one of them accidentally caught a glimpse of something sitting in the fridge. Something that should not have been sitting there at all. It was a woman's head. They were drunk, but not that drunk, I guess. So they ran away and called the police. Different story, but same outcome. Due to the nature of his crimes, the police were starting to tie all the murdered women in recent years back to Nikolai, but of course, they couldn't be 100% sure. It matched what he told the police about how he liked to murder women, or rather what he called prostitutes, because he saw them as terrible people and needed to be cleansed from this world. This is a very old theme, really. We have seen various serial killers who have had negative experiences with women, and if you couple that with some other major issues in their lives or mental health issues, it can turn extreme and deadly. In his case, remember he contracted two STDs while he was young. Maybe that's from some interaction with sex workers, and this left him with feeling like a victim. Aside from hating and targeting women, he also admitted that he wanted to know what it's like to eat humans. He didn't feel anything at first. Like the taste wasn't terrible or amazing, but he kind of forced himself to continue eating it, and eventually he grew to like it. We've all probably had some experience with this, but we usually force ourselves to eat something because it's good for us, like veggies or medicine. Can't say the same about human flesh. Despite liking to host dinner parties and inviting friends over, he was adamant that he had never served human meat to anyone else. It was all just for him. Would you believe this if, say, you were a friend of his and spent a few nights eating dinner with him at his house? It was rumored that his dinner parties tended to coincide on days right after he killed someone, so I don't think it's crazy to assume he served human to his friends. If anything, it probably gave him this sense of satisfaction, knowing that he was able to do something terrible without others even knowing. So we got this man in custody. Now what? On December 3rd, 1981, about a year after he was arrested, Nikolai, aka Metal Fang, was finally put on trial. As a side note, his nickname Metal Fang is kind of interesting. It's not really because he ate people, but it just so happened that when he was quite young, he had gotten into a fight where he lost a bunch of his teeth. Instead of getting regular denture material of plastic and acrylic resin, 
he opted for white metal as a substitute, which is why he had the nickname Metal Fang. It's possible he had this nickname even prior to getting arrested for killing and cannibalizing people. So back to his trial. Due to him being diagnosed with schizophrenia years ago, the judge was convinced that this man was simply not mentally well. So despite his crimes being extremely awful, he was found to be mentally insane, therefore unable to stand trial. Instead of prison, he was once again sent to a hospital where he would receive special care aimed to keep him safe from others and from himself. Again, I do think it's a good thing to recognize those with severe mental illness, and knowing that sending these people to prison might not be the best idea. So he's in a mental institution. That's the end, but not really. In August of 1989, while Nikolai was being transported to another mental institution, he managed to escape by taking a car. How this happened is beyond me, but maybe people had their guard down because he was a likable man and didn't see him as a threat. Get this, though. He managed to roam around the USSR and its neighboring countries for a total of two years after escaping. He mostly stayed hidden in the mountain regions of Kyrgyzstan, occasionally traveling to towns for food and necessities. He knew he could hide, but he couldn't hide forever, especially since he knew how much of a wanted man he was. He began plotting, writing letters, sending them pretending to be in Moscow, praising the city and the beautiful women there. But in actuality, he was hiding out in another city. Shockingly, his plan worked. This continued on for a bit, until one day Nikolai himself got tired of his fugitive lifestyle. His grand plan probably sounded easy in his head, but really it was kind of dumb. He decided he wanted to get arrested, but not for being Nikolai the cannibal. He decided to do some petty theft and get caught right then and there. He was captured in the city of Fergana, located in Uzbekistan, in April of 1991. Initially, he pretended to be a Chinese citizen. And if you've seen photos of him, yes, he looks like a regular white man. But it's also not uncommon for Chinese citizens to have very different types of features. So while being questioned by the police, he happily admitted to stealing. But that's it. He didn't want to reveal his real identity. Police were very suspicious of this man, though. Because if he was indeed a Chinese citizen... How did he manage to get to the Soviet Union with no ID or papers? The police then sent a request to Moscow, asking them if they knew anything about this man. And that's how Nikolai's true identity was revealed. He was immediately sent back to a mental institution in Kazakhstan. Because of his escape, he was then put in an isolated section with intense safety measures. It would be terrible if this guy managed to get away again. Here's one little piece of info that may shock you about Nikolai's escape. So the police were on the lookout for this man because he was a danger to society. But guess what? The police never issued a statement, nor did anyone aside from law enforcement know that Nikolai had escaped. In other words, no one knew they could be in danger. That's very odd, right? I strongly believe that this could have happened for two reasons. One, you don't want to cause mass panic among civilians. Sure, awareness is good, but we know that sometimes things can get carried away. But more importantly, I believe they didn't tell the public because it would make the police look bad. 
Maybe it's a safe face. I don't know. Basically, the public only found out about Nikolai's escape after he was recaptured. At this point, I wonder why he even announced that he was recaptured. In relation to his escape, you might also be wondering, did he kill anyone else during that time? Some say yes. He was charged for the death of a young woman in Aktobe, a city in Kazakhstan. She was said to be his 10th and last victim. Despite him currently serving his sentence in a hospital, he was still put on trial for that. From what we know, Nikolai was charged and convicted for the murder of 10 individuals, but in the opinion of some experts, they believe the number could go as high as 100. While he admitted that he hated prostitutes, not all women he killed were in fact prostitutes. If he was using the word prostitute as a synonym for women, then who knows how many more victims are out there. And assuming they were never discovered, would he have admitted to killing more than what he was accused of? It was later revealed that he had harbored extra resentment towards European women, as he found them to be too quote-unquote free, which I guess in his mind meant that they lacked morals and did not dress modestly. One more weird thing happened around December of 2015, which is really quite recent. People began receiving reports and WhatsApp messages stating that Nikolai the Maneater was on the loose once again. He had supposedly escaped police custody for the second time. Understandably, people began panicking and were forwarding such messages and articles all over, hoping that this sort of awareness can help save the lives of others. There was no malice behind this, I'm sure, but when the police were asked to elaborate, they were like, what? Quote, we do not have information about the escape of the man and have no orders to catch him. This information is confusing, unquote. Indeed, it's completely understandable if the public felt like the police were lying because technically speaking, they covered up his escape once already. What's stopping them from doing it again? Although many people believe that Nikolai did indeed escape, there were reports stating that this was actually just a rumor started by a random woman. Why? No clue. But what's even more curious was that another young woman, only 22 years of age, had disappeared around New Year's of 2015. Those that believe Nikolai did escape strongly believe he did something to her, but this information was never confirmed by the police, and whether or not he's still in police custody is kind of a mystery. So there you have it, the awful murders and cannibalism done by a seemingly nice man Nikolai Zumagaliev. It's interesting to note that he was not the only serial killer operating during USSR times. Another serial killer named Alexander Skrinik was busy killing and dismembering women in Moldova during the 80s, and at the time, Alexander was unknown to the public. Everyone believed that Nikolai had escaped and was killing in Moldova, and this rumor was finally put to rest once the real killer was captured. Another killer might be more familiar to you, Andrei Chikatilo, also known as the Rostov Ripper. He went around killing women and children during the late 70s and 80s. There's a long list of serial killers during that time, and not surprisingly, their targets were generally women and young children. It's despicable for sure, and I believe there are probably more serial killers out there we have not yet discovered. It's a little discouraging, and it's also out of our control. 
So what we need to do is just be more aware and careful. Anything can happen to anyone, so please do what you can to stay safe. Hopefully Nikolai is indeed sitting in a hospital and not out there somewhere, preying on other young, unsuspecting women. Thank you all for taking the time to listen to this episode. I will be back soon with another case of death, but this time, kind of unsolved. Till next time. Thank you for tuning in to the Asian Madness Podcast. If you enjoyed my content, please rate and review me on iTunes. If you would like to get in touch with me, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or email me at asianmadnesspod at gmail.com.